You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now in the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is the word of the Lord. City on Hill, it is so good to be with you this morning. It is, uh, it's been a long time since I've been in this room. It's been uh, since we had our conference uh, back in 2019. Uh, and so it is uh, exciting to gather again, and it is a privilege to open God's Word with you. And so if you can have that passage in Nehemiah 9 open, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to help us, uh, and then we're going to get stuck into hearing His voice. So let's pray. Uh, Father God, we do thank you uh, that in your incredible grace and generosity to us, you speak that we might hear, that we might see you, that we might know you. Uh, God, we ask in this moment that you would prepare our hearts, that you would take away distraction, that you would take away fear, that you would take anything that would prevent us from hearing and responding and being shaped by your word. God, I pray for people in this room for whom the idea of opening your word is new. I pray in this moment that they might hear your voice clearly, that you would do a work among us for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1976, Elton John said it best, sorry seems to be the hardest word. Not a lot has changed. I had to Google when that came out, just so you know, I'm not that old. Not a lot has changed since he released that song. Sorry still seems to be the hardest word. Uh, I have uh, two little boys, or they're not that little anymore, they're 10 and 7. And so a big chunk of the last few years of my life has revolved around playgrounds. Uh, And and so we would go to the playground and uh, as a dad who's trying to be a half decent dad, I would walk that tightrope of like, you know, checking my phone periodically, but also responsibly putting it in my pocket so I can engage with my kids until I got a notification. Uh, And so in the playground kind of politics, there's this this sense where the parents are kind of comparing themselves to one another. uh, And so I want to be a good parent. You know, I'm I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to be the, the family guy who loves his kids and plays with them. And so when my seven-year-old says, dad, tag, you're it, um, I I say whatever a few times, but then eventually I'm like, all right, let's play. And I chase them. Uh, And if you're a parent, you know that in games like this, there's this uh, fine line between 
allowing your kids to feel like it's a contest and ensuring you don't embarrass yourself as an adult who's physically able. Uh, And so I I feel like I was nailing it on this particular day. Uh, It was a big fancy playground with multiple levels. There were kids everywhere. Uh, And so I'm dodging kids, tagging my sons. If my seven-year-old was stuck being in, I would tag my 10-year-old and then he'd tag the seven-year-old. And so the cycle continued. Uh, And then there was one particular moment where I'm standing at the base of the play equipment. It's about this tall. And my 10-year-old is standing in front of me up on the platform and I'm trying to tag him. I'm trying to utilize the fact that I'm tall. I've got albatross wingspan. And so I'm kind of reaching around like this. Uh, He's kind of going one way and then the other. And this playground has ramps down this side, slides down this side. So lots of escape options for him. And we're just in this standoff. And then at the moment where he suddenly commits and goes for the slide, I likewise commit. And, you know, I've got muscle fibers twitched, ready, explosive energy. And so I go with him. And as I go, I lift my my leading leg because I don't want to fall and look ridiculous. I lift this leg ready for that first step. And as I begin to explode sideways, and I mean explode, there was power in this movement. I begin to feel just a hint of drag on my leading leg. And there's just like, I don't have time in the moment to look and absorb all of my surroundings. I'm committed to tagging my son so that he knows that I'm better at this than he is. Uh, But there's something's just not right about this movement. Something's not going the way it's supposed to. My leg's not going to land. And as I kind of feel this drag, I I realize that that there's something there. And I just get half a glance down. And while we've been playing tip, and while my son and I have been in this standoff, uh, someone has thought a great place for their like under one-year-old to sit would be next to my foot. And so as I'm exploding sideways, and did I mention it was explosive, <laughs> the drag on my leg is a baby. And I've got just enough peripheral vision to spot that that is the problem, the hindrance in this situation. Uh, And so I kind of do my best evasive maneuvers. There was kind of a half backflip twist pike. There was some downward pressure on the baby ultimately. Now, I just want to insert a qualifier here. The baby was ultimately okay. There was some tears and the baby was upset as well. But I, I fell on my back. It was embarrassing. But the worst bit was afterwards that every parent in the park, it's like there was just this audience of judgment looking at me. And I felt about this big. And my seven-year-old's like, all right, whatever, dad, tip, you're it. Trying to keep playing. I'm like, boys, I think we need to leave. I think it's time to go home. And I'm awkwardly interacting with this poor uh, mum who's got, got their baby in tears, who's just been crushed by some uncoordinated oaf. Uh, and that, but there was this kind of bit inside me that even though I knew I'd done the wrong thing, was balking at, at saying sorry for it. Because internally I'm rationalizing what kind of parent puts their, their under one-year-old, their non-mobile child underneath 100 kilos of crushing power. It's just you don't stick your kid under the car to play and hope everyone checks before. I'm sitting there internally justifying this is not my fault, even though deep down I know that I have done the wrong thing. 
The reason that sorry seems to be the hardest word isn't that we don't feel bad about what we've done or that we don't realize we've done the wrong thing. At least usually that's not the problem. The issue is that when we speak that word sorry, we transition into in kind of validating and cementing the guilt. It's more than just a word. It says more than just sorry. It commits to the reality that we are in debt to the person that we've wronged. It actually empowers this person as you are over me and I owe you. And in a litigation happy culture like ours, we resist responsibility at all costs. Sorry is an uncomfortable word. And it could be that, that if you're somebody who's checking out Christianity and checking out following Jesus, that, that this is actually one of the barriers for you when it comes to stepping in and saying, I'll follow you. Because you, you've heard and you know and you understand that sorry is a big part. Confession is a big part of what it means to follow Jesus. If you look at the New Testament, we're told that if we claim to be without sin, which is just another way of saying if we're not saying sorry, if we're not confessing, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God out to be a liar. It is a huge part of what it means to follow God, to, to be able to say that word sorry and acknowledge our guilt before him. And where we're going today, we're going to drop into a passage in Nehemiah that is a half day sorry party. And so for you, it could be that this is that, that kind of balk point when it comes to maybe starting to follow Jesus. Or if you're someone who's been around church, you're in church, you're here, it's this balk point as to whether or not you would go further when it comes to following Jesus. Whether or not you would offer up all the parts of your life in obedience to him. We've been walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for a number of weeks now. I don't know what week we're up to. Uh, we have followed God's rescue of his people out of captivity in Babylon. And in three different kind of migrations, they have returned to Jerusalem, the city that God gifted to their ancestors. They have rebuilt the temple. They have rebuilt the walls. And now they are in the process last week of reading God's word and understanding that there are some things that need to change, not just physically, but spiritually and internally as well. And so I want to read to you from chapter 9, verse 1, as we embark on their half-day sorry party. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. There, there is kind of a seriousness and a somberness and a heaviness to this episode that we're looking here. There's, there's grief in this process of saying sorry. They're in sackcloth. There is earth on their heads. They're, they're not celebrating. Celebrating was in chapter 8. That was positive. It's going to be more celebration at the end. But there is a guilt and a sense of failure in this episode that we're looking at. The idea of coming before God as a whole nation and spending this extended time saying sorry, focusing on the things that are not good, feels like a bad moment, and yet it is good. 
the celebration before and afterwards are actually a celebration in the context of this bit as well. It's part of the whole process of what God is doing. And so the question I want us to wrestle with today in this passage is, how can confessing guilt be a good thing? How is the call of God to come to him and say sorry and own that we fail a good gift from him? I want to show you two reasons, and then we're going to look at how we can actually do it well. First reason is who God is, and the second reason is who you are, because that's the context for this conversation, isn't it? That's what's happening as this nation gathers. It's not about the the people they're sitting next to or even the people up the front who are reading the Word. This is God speaking to them in His Word and them choosing how they will respond in that moment. And who you're speaking to drastically shapes how you are able to speak to that person. If you have an idea in your head that, that, that God is this kind of all-loving, all-forgiving God is love, He doesn't care what you do, all He does is love, then you're going to be really comfortable in what you say to Him. But ironically, you're not going to think you have anything to, to say sorry for or to confess. But then at the other end of the spectrum, if you think God is this angry, vengeful, wrathful God who, who doesn't tolerate any, any kind of sin or badness in you, you're going to be nervous, fearful even about being honest with what you discover when you look at your own life and your own heart. And so let's look at the God who Israel confesses to, the God who is revealed in Scripture, the God who one day all of us will stand before in chapter 9, verse 6. It says, You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. He is the Lord alone. He created everything that is. He sustains everything that is. He holds everything in his hand. He is all-powerful and all-knowing, which means you can't fake with him. Even if you try and put your best foot forward and convince him that you're doing fantastic, he knows. He's there. He's present. There's an uh, an illustration that is sometimes used in evangelistic courses, those courses where people are exploring Jesus. Uh, And it's an illustration to help us understand that we all are not as good as we think we are. And the illustration goes something like this. Imagine that your whole life... Every moment, every thought, every action, everything was displayed on a screen kind of like this one. And everyone who knew you and anyone who was interested was invited to come and sit in these comfy seats and just watch every thought. Every moment that you thought no one ever knew about or would ever find out about it on public display. Isn't that a terrifying thought? It terrifies me. But here's the thing, it's happening right now. God is so powerful and so present in everything that he is watching every moment. He knows your thoughts, he knows your deepest, darkest secrets, and you cannot hide from him. But here's the good news, why would you want to? Not only is he the Lord who's powerful and everywhere, he's good. I'm going to skip through these verses, but try and follow along with me. In verse 7, we see that this same Lord chose Abraham out of nothing and made a covenant to bless him. 
There's nothing great about Abraham, but in God's generosity and mercy, he picks him and promises to him. In verse 8, we see that he keeps his promises even when others are not faithful to him. In verse 9, we see that he's attentive to the prayers of his people. When they get themselves in trouble and realize they're doing the wrong thing and cry out, what do we see? He hears their prayer. In verse 9 again, not only does he hear, he rescues his people out of Egypt, leads them in the wilderness. When they're in the desert, he rains down food from heaven, gives them water from the rock. He provides for them. And then in verse 13, he even in his kindness gives them laws and commands that they might know how to live. So that they might not be left guessing, but that they may walk in the joy of obedience to him. But the best bit is the last part of verse 17. Despite all the things that they do time and time again, it says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. He's a God ready to forgive. He is the God who creates. He is the God to whom we will answer, but he is ready to forgive. If we would come, if we would confess, he is gracious and merciful. It's in his name. Way back in Exodus, when Moses asks the Lord, he says, can I see your glory? And the Lord hides him in the rock and kind of passes by. And as he passes by, he proclaims his name. And who is he? He's the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and forgiving sin generation to generation. And here we are hundreds of years later, he's still the same. He's still the Lord ready to forgive. He's still compassionate and gracious in Nehemiah's day. And right now, today, he hasn't changed. He is still the Lord, compassionate and gracious. It goes on. He gives land. He wins battles. He multiplies their numbers. He satisfies them. He, he hears them and warns them when they disobey. He rescues them. See, confession, saying sorry to God is not about letting God know what you've done. He already knows what you've done. It's about coming to him as you really are because he's good and in his goodness, he's invited you to come. And that's important because it's not just about him. It's about us as well. It's about who you are and who you and I are is not good. The stark contrast to this prayer that Israel prays is pretty obvious You've got this good God who is merciful and gracious and blesses them in so many different ways. And then on the other hand, you've got Israel who respond to that goodness like this in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. They take his blessing and run. He's been good to them and they go, well, I guess he has to be good because he's good. So we'll take it and treat him like he doesn't matter. They act entitled to his goodness. In fact, in verse 18, they even create a golden calf. You might know the story and worship that golden calf that they have made and said, this is the God who rescued us as a rejection of the God who actually came down and heard their cry. And even in his judgment on them, he continues 
to care for them, provide for them, and watch over them. In verse 26, they're disobedient, they rebel, they even kill the prophets that God sends to warn them, and once they've been rescued, they quickly return to old habits. There's this phrase that keeps getting repeated in here, they were stiff-necked, they were stubborn, they would not listen, that there's this heart issue for them. See, the problem is not that they've done some things that are bad. The problem is that because they're stubborn, they default to doing bad. The issue that needs to be confessed and handed over is not some things that they've done, but a heart posture that they have. It's a pattern. This prayer relays a chunk of Israel's history. And generation after generation, it's the same problem. God is good to them. They take the good. They reject God. They get in trouble and they cry out in need of help again. It is a heart issue. But the reality is this is not unique to Israel. This is not unique to the Old Testament. Sin is a human condition. It's a heart condition, a posture that refuses to be told by God what is good and right and true and that will not submit to his right rule over creation. Or at least will submit as long as that submitting doesn't in any way make me not do the things that I want to do anyway. So you can be God as long as you basically want what I want. Confession is good news for Israel and for us. It's a gift from God because our sin, their sin, puts them in a position of opposition with God. It doesn't just put them on another path, an alternative. It puts them in opposition. It makes us his enemies and nothing we do fixes that. See, ironically, this is why most of us don't confess. Because we don't want to face the hopelessness of our situation. We don't want to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. Back in uh, 2015, uh, there was an adult website, it's called Ashley Madison, that was basically there to facilitate extramarital affairs. Some of you might be familiar with this. In 2015, it was hacked. And the details of the clients of this website were made available publicly on the internet. So here you have people who have made the decision in their mind secretly to have affairs outside of marriage and suddenly that reality becomes public. There was a story in particular of a pastor and professor in a seminary in America who ultimately chose suicide as an alternative to facing this reality with his family. The hopelessness of his situation meant that he would rather escape than engage what was real. Rather than deal with his guilt, he was crushed by it. Confession is a gift from God because it brings guilty people to a God who forgives. It brings people who are crushed by trying to keep secrets and keep up appearances to the one place, the one person, the one God who can actually do something about that. It enables genuine repentance. 
Now, I want to say we need to make a distinction at this point between the kind of confession and repentance that Israel is doing here and then the fake version that actually is kind of the one that we're used to as a culture. The, the fake version of sorry is the sorry just for the consequence. So I'm really sorry you guys found out about this. And because you found out about it, I'm going to say sorry publicly and then hope you don't find out about the other stuff. It's the sorry that is vague and doesn't actually laser in on the specifics of not just what I did, but why I did it. It's like when you're looking at a car and going, well, the paint job's shiny. And so it doesn't matter what the engine's doing. It's the sorry that only cares about what others see. That doesn't actually help because guilt's not on the outside, it's on the inside. The pressure that you feel around people that know you, that fear that you have, that people might find out that's not external, that's internal. It's your secret. But genuine repentance is concrete. It's specific. I mean, did you notice Israel in this passage? They named specific instances in their history where they did what was dishonoring to God. They don't try and skirt it or be non-specific. They say to God, this is what we did. And we deserve the judgment that came. But the other key bit of genuine repentance, genuine sorry, godly confession, Christian confession, is that God is the standard against which you are measuring yourself. Not everyone else. There's a story in Luke's gospel of a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go to the temple to pray. The tax collector understands the holiness of the God that he comes to, the God we've just looked at, and he falls on his knees and just begs for mercy. The Pharisee comes to the temple to pray and does not look to the God who he's praying to. He looks to the man on his knees and says, thank God I'm not like him. And so he'll find something to say sorry for, but his measuring stick is wrong. His measuring stick is not the one to whom he answers. Genuine confession is to God, is concrete and is specific, just like Israel. I mean, did you notice in this prayer, they reach back generations to take responsibility for their treatment of God from the beginning. They, they, they kind of wander through history and then not just history. Because when you get to chapter 9 and verse 33, it says, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. It's ownership. It's not, hey, I'm sorry that what we did made you feel this way. It's we have acted wickedly. It's not, hey, the things we did were not as good as they could have been. It's we did evil. We were disobedient. We were presumptuous. We were stubborn. We were stiff-necked. Genuine repentance takes responsibility and commits to being different as a result. Have a look at chapter 9 and verse 38. It says, because of all this, because of who God is and because of who they are, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Israel recommits to the covenant that they're supposed to already be living in. They go back to the start point and go, we have wandered away, we have mistreated you, God, but we want to be the people that you chose us to be. 
They commit to a whole bunch of stuff that's there in chapter 10. Things like not intermarrying anymore. Things like obeying the commandments. Things like keeping the Sabbath. Things like maintaining temple worship. The heart of what they're committing to is there at the end of chapter 10. In verse 39, the very last sentence. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Israel's purpose as a nation was not to be good. The thing that's being rebuilt here is not a moral group of people that will set a good example. It's the people that would be God's people where he would dwell so that the nations would come to know him. Israel's purpose was to be blessed by God so that they could be a a blessing on earth. That was to delight in his presence with them, to walk in obedience to him, to enjoy the gifts of his provision of land and children and protection and all the things that he gave them so that the way that they lived in obedience would declare to the nations around them, our God is worthy of obedience, would declare to the nations around them, our God is merciful despite our disobedience, would declare to the nations around them, our God provides when we are in need. He hears our cry. He protects his people. He alone is the Lord. And so for them in this moment, genuine repentance means ownership of their opposition to who God called them to be. Ownership that disobedience is opposition. Ownership of the fact that self-interest and just pursuing rest or God's stuff instead of God is opposition to the God who is worthy of our absolute and exclusive worship. But also a commitment from now we will pursue that. If you are a follower of Jesus, God's purpose for us is to be the people of God. We're not Israel in the Old Testament, but this side of Jesus, anyone who puts their faith in him, is a child of God and his purpose for us is to be the people of God, to be blessed by him in order to be a blessing on his behalf, to be those who have received mercy and forgiveness, who have the word speaking to us and shaping us, who have God's presence with us by his Holy Spirit to comfort us and give us peace even when the world around us is in turmoil. To be blessed by him so that we might be those who love and serve and proclaim hope in a world that is dark. And so genuine repentance for us is both ownership of our opposition to that purpose. Ownership of the fact that rather than taking his blessing for the purpose of his glory... We've just been self-interested. We've been more worried about our comfort and our pleasure, our rights and our entitlements. Genuine repentance is not saying, hey, it's been tough. And, you know, the last couple of years, sure, I haven't been really seeking you, but you don't understand how hard it's been. I've, I've done what is wicked. And then committing to pursue that going forward. It's not ownership of, I haven't read my Bible as many times this week as maybe I should have. It's not ownership just of what happens in our hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouth. It's heart ownership. 
It's that genuine repentance that, that wrestles with the fact that the issue is not entirely what we do and don't do, but it's that God who alone is Lord is worthy of exclusive worship. And we just love other things too much. Or more specifically, we just don't love him enough. We love ourselves. We love our career. We love our comfort. We love our health. We love our ambition. He alone is Lord. And so repentance looks like ownership of our opposition to pursuit of his glory. Now, this is not just a call for you to try harder. If that's what you're hearing, I want to apologize. That's not what I'm trying to say. Even the commitment Israel makes in this passage, and it's a significant commitment. When they commit to it, they commit to it on pain of curse. If we don't do this, we deserve curse is what they effectively say. But their commitment is based on him, not on them. Notice it turns in chapter 9, verse 32. It says, now therefore... So because of all this stuff we just talked about, God's faithfulness, God's character, who he is. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the times of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. They're not pointing the finger. They're not demanding from God. They're not acting presumptuously like they have in the past. They just cry out for mercy. They acknowledge that at this point in their history, they are not the great nation that God called them to be. They are not enjoying the land that he gifted to them. Even the fruit that's coming from the land that he gifted to them is being handed to foreign kings that they are in subjection to because of their disobedience. But they don't come to God and say, you have to fix this. They say, you've acted righteously. We deserve this. But they still come to him because they know he is a God ready to forgive. And so confident in that forgiveness, they they, they don't just want to kind of clean slate. They want to be better. They want to grow. They want to move forward. God is not calling them to a way of life. He is calling them to be his I mean, even the things that they're committing to in their covenant, keeping the Sabbath, that's only possible because God provides for them. If there is not a God who gives them what they need, then taking a day off in the week is stupidity. It's irresponsible. But because God provides... Because he is the Lord who is faithful and steadfast, obedience to the Sabbath is a reflection of God's presence with them and his love for them. It's not a bargain to get it. It's a response to what he has already done. Even temple worship, they commit to not neglecting the temple, to making sure the priests have what they need and stuff continues going with sacrifices and worship. The temple was God's gift to them. The worship that he specifies, these sacrifices, these days, these festivals, that is him saying, I will invite you into my presence. 
They can't just start doing sacrifices and think that that means they're going to walk into God's presence. In fact, whenever anyone does that in the Old Testament, they get consumed by fire. Their commitment is nothing without the grace of God first. But because of His grace... Their confession, their sorrow, their sorry, their grief, their repentance, it's more than just sorry. It's this is not good enough and we need your forgiveness and we commit to being better. We commit to pursuing obedience, which is only possible because, again, it's not not about pursuing morality. It's about pursuing the kind of life that somebody who belongs to God lives. They're committing to living in the freedom and joy that God has made possible by choosing them and making them his own. And so if you're a Christian, God is not calling you to be moral. That's not his first goal for you. That's not his desire. It's not his design for you. He is calling you to be his, his treasured possession. His precious son or daughter. Yes, he wants you to be different to the world out there and how you live because you trust his provision. He wants you to trust his protection. He wants you to believe him when he says he will satisfy you with good things. And the reason you can believe and trust those things is because of Jesus. Because when God sends Jesus, sends his own son to suffer, to to pay the debt that we owe, to take the punishment we deserve, he draws a line that says, there is nothing I would not give in order to forgive you. He gives his most costly thing, his son, so that in every circumstance and situation, you could rest confidently knowing that God loves you that he is still loving you, that he is still ready to forgive no matter what you might have done, that the invitation is there to come, to hear his word, to confess and to find forgiveness. And once forgiven, then and only then can you walk in obedience to the Lord. Even when it's unpopular, even when it's costly. The life that God commands for us, the life that his word leads us in, that God is working in us by his spirit, is ultimately the life that maximizes our enjoyment of him and his glory in the world. That's his heart and his desire. He is in the process of transforming us in preparation for eternity. One day we will be face to face with him. And as you and I stand right now, we're not ready for that. Because he is perfect and we are not. And so until we get there, you and I are a work in progress. Now there's a tension we need to hold here. Hebrews 10 makes this incredible promise that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This tension where he has declared us innocent by the blood of Jesus and welcomed us into the family and given us his Holy Spirit so his presence is with us and working in us, but also he is still doing a work. Until we are face to face with him in heaven, there is still parts of your heart, parts of your life, parts of your thoughts, parts of your actions that need to be pruned and changed and transformed. 
And what that means is anything less than a life of ongoing confession and repentance is opposition to God. All you bring to the process that God is working in you to make you more like Jesus is the sin you confess. That's the entirety of your contribution. And what he brings is grace and mercy and love and comfort and assurance and the Holy Spirit as a seal that guarantees that even though we might stumble and fall, one day he will welcome us into eternal home. But here and now, as we look forward to that day, as we wait for that day, anything less than ongoing confession and repentance is opposition to God. When his word is open, come knowing that there are pieces of you that need to be handed over. There may be pieces that you can't even see yet. That's the wonder of God's word, the power of his Holy Spirit, that it opens our eyes to understand the depths of our heart's sickness, the patterns of sin that we've become so comfortable with. But understand the call to confess is good news, not just today, but every day until Jesus returns or he takes you home. And so I want to challenge you right now. I'm going to pray for us a prayer of confession. I can't pray specifically. I can't confess on your behalf. But let this prayer be an invitation for you to come to God with the things that you know you've been holding, you've been keeping back from him, ways you've been living that you've been trying to justify, that you don't want to take responsibility for. Let's come to the God who is ready to forgive with all of it. Because when we do, we discover that he is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us. If you're sitting there and you go, I don't even know what to confess. Maybe your confession is that, that you're out of the habit. You've forgotten that this is the work that God's doing. That you've started listening to God's word as a textbook of kind of nice things rather than the living word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword. So I'm going to pray now. We're going to come before God and find him faithful to forgive. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are holy, that you are just, that you are powerful, that you are consistent that you are ready to forgive. Thank you that you know us, that even as we try and hide, that in your kindness you shine a light. You rescue us from the trap of guilt, from the trap of trying to somehow impress you or be better than we actually are. And so, Father, right now we just want to acknowledge we need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, open our eyes to the parts of our lives and heart that right now are in opposition to you, that are making us flee your goodness rather than come to you and find forgiveness in our time of need. Father, may the guilt not be crushing. As we hand it over, may it be replaced with the joy of salvation.
the deep assurance that your love is enough. Father, forgive us because of Jesus. By his blood, forgive us, lift guilt, change our hearts that we might desire you more than anything else, that we might love you more than ourselves, more than anything that the world has to offer, that our lives might be lives worthy of the, the, the gospel, worthy of what you have done for us. Father, fill us with the joy of being yours so that the world might see you and you might get glory. We pray it confident in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.